Ah, Sunday again. Here we are, Ben. How you doing this morning? I'm doing good. Bright and early, bright and early on a Sunday morning. Yeah, I had a great weekend. I had a very relaxing weekend. Spent some time with my husband, you know, that that downtime with the fam jam. Date night. I'm I'm feeling all the love this morning. <laughs> I am. He's been working away, so it's I get to see him That's now. Nice. He comes to call. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah, here and there. So I'm on top of the world this weekend. Yeah, I had some family in town this weekend too. It yes, was uh, right. really nice and uh, pretty quiet. All in all, uh, Growlers action last night. Back in action yep. this afternoon for the for the last time for uh, for the rest of the month of January. Uh, all star break, yeah, coming right. up, and then they uh, head out for a seven game road trip, and then back in action to uh, start the month of February. So, come on down. What does All Star break mean? I hear you say it all the time, and I so never. The I ECHL will do their All Star weekend, yeah. um, where I believe the ECHL does it a little differently, where basically a team of All Stars will play against the host team hmm. um, from around the league, and they'll have like a little skills competition and stuff like that, um, and then it's just kind of a vacation week a little right, bit of a break off. for other players midterm yeah so um just a nice little kind of pause a way to celebrate some of the players and their achievements so far cool. in the season uh yeah it's great uh, i understand why a lot of people don't like all-star games and stuff at every level because they have turned into more of it's not much of a competition right you could say more i do a friendly think the, bit of fun yeah i do yeah. think the echl one is a lot better than like let's say the nhl yeah. because it's really a vacation in the nhl because <laughs> um, <laughs> it's hard to get to that upper yeah, echelon level of skating these days now more than ever and um so it, it is a little different but uh the echl all-star game and weekend is always a great time and uh, and it's just a good chance to give back to yeah. fans too right it's a really interactive time and uh and you get to meet players see them you know do these skills competitions and then have a fun game it's just a great way to celebrate you know fans media sponsors all that kind of stuff alike so all in all it'll be some fun and uh johnny tyconic growlers defenseman will be their representative he's having a great year gosh i wish my name was johnny tyconic i know johnny that on the spot an amazing name i know it wow is. and it just rolls off the tongue and a great guy <laughs> great guy <laughs> great guy Somehow, even better hockey player. Wow, awesome. So we're going to be talking a little bit about hockey throughout the best of here on your VOCM mornings. Well, it is the best of our show throughout the week. So grab a cup of tea. Piece of toast. Maybe some coffee. Biscuits. Join us for the best of your VOCM mornings. Good Sunday morning and welcome to a time when we look back on the highlights of the show over the week. I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. And I'm Ben Murphy and we have lots to get through over the next hour. Physicians who work with Medicuro, a virtual healthcare clinic, are seeing a dramatic increase in the number of patients who are looking to refill their narcotic prescriptions. They say government has abandoned, quote, orphaned patients who are seeking prescriptions for controlled medications. Dr. Todd Young is the medical director of Medicuro. He joined us on Monday morning. So what's behind the increase in the number of patients coming to Medicuro, ERs, and pharmacies looking for narcotic narcotic refills? And, uh, of course, uh, you know, our province, we have a a diverse uh, group of of, of people with increasing demands. Uh, I guess there are are increasing demands with regards to those with chronic pain, there are increasing demands of other controlled medications, such as those who have had a diagnosis of ADHD and are on uh, stimulants or other controlled medications. And then um, 
And then we also have, of course, the increasing number of orphan patients that we see throughout the province. So I still think the one in five is still what's being sort of quoted out there as uh, uh, people who don't have a, a regular provider. Uh, so I, I think we're seeing the increase simply because, you know, the, the those two problems or those problems, particularly chronic pain in general, is an increasing societal problem, increasing problem in our province. And we know that about 30 to 40 percent have chronic pain and those will you know, increase in females, increase as you get older, and actually studies would say it's increased in, in urban versus rural. And so patients who have been on chronic medications or ongoing medications and treatment for their chronic illness are having trouble uh, getting refills for their, for their medications. So what problems is this causing for you and other medical professionals who aren't able to help them? So what we've done at Medicare is we're, we're streamlining a little bit in that we're really each patient who requests a, a, a refill of their chronic medications like this, you know, we have an, as physicians, we have an, a professional obligation through our college and regulatory body to either examine the patient to, if we don't have an ongoing uh, relationship with them, then we need to you know, see where they we, where we can offer that care. Uh, we need to have uh, an obligation to either talk to the pharmacist, review their records. But you know, and sometimes, and this is where the challenge really comes in for us as providers. You know, we have a, a group of providers who are compassionate, who really want to help patients. Obviously, we wouldn't be in the business of helping and filling the gaps. Uh, but the challenge is, is how do we meet the regulatory standard? And how do we still maintain our, our, our compassion as professionals, but yet within a broken system where sometimes we just can't satisfy all the requirements? So, for example, you know, medical records. Well, we have an increase in immigration. We see lots of immigrants on our platform. We have a lot of people migrating to uh, the province. But even those within the province, those who have lost their family position, those who are who don't have readily accessible medical records, uh, you know, that's providing a challenge for us because we really need to be cognizant of the fact that we need to safely prescribe, but we also need to be able to uh, monitor and, uh, uh, and yeah, you know, so safely monitoring and, and prescribing these types of medications. Is a refusal to refill prescriptions leading to abuse of your physicians and staff? Yeah, so first, we're not we're not really refusing. We're just becoming more uh, challenged by the fact that we don't always have all the information that's satisfied to to prescribe the medication. So, you know, we we are we do our due diligence to try and do that. But absolutely, so you know, if someone's been on a chronic medication for uh, or opiates for a chronic medication. What's happening is, you know, patients are, are getting frustrated. They've probably been to the emergency department and told no. They've called 811 and told no. They've, you know, they've accessed or they felt they went to a walk-in clinic and been told no. And they're frustrated. They're frustrated that they can't get a medication that they've been prescribed for some time. And what that leads to, of course, are, 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 are very complicated uh, reactions sometimes and it increases irritability. It, it challenges their physical and mental well-being if they're left with these medications uh, or not having these medications for some time. You know, the pharmacist can be a very valuable uh, 
person in this in this problem. But again, they're a regulatory body. We have limitations. They can renew prescriptions of uh, of narcotics and other controlled substances. I think for up to four weeks, uh, without having a, a physician's prescription. So that has been able to get us out of the get many patients out of a uh, a bit of a tough spot. We're speaking with Dr. Todd Young, Medical Director of Medicuro. And Dr. Young, if someone is coming to Medicuro for a refill on a narcotics prescription and you can't fill it, where do they often turn instead? So I guess, you know, again, we are doing our best to make sure that uh, that we can do try and help them the best way we can. But it's a good question, Ben, because there is no clear pathway for patients or physicians uh, to, to, to really give patients direction. Where, where do they go? And that, that is the problem. And I think, you know, as, uh, as a company that's been founded on filling the gaps, being very patient oriented uh, and, and with compassion and, and doing the best that we can, we're, even though we're doing the best that we can, we still are recognizing that the system is broken and and that we are, we just can't take responsibility for for this broken system. You know, at the end of the day, primary care is, or a lack of primary care or attachment to a primary care physician or parent or or nurse practitioner that is the problem. You know, uh, Dr. Francine Lemire, who uh, just uh, received the Order of Canada, I heard interview with her uh, last week, uh, and she, and she highlighted the fact that one of the biggest concern she has is the fact that we're moving away from the unattached patient being the new norm. And I think, uh, you know, we need to do, government needs to do whatever it can to get every single Newfoundlander and Labradorian attached to a provider. And the more that we can develop that system, the better service those patients will be. Yeah. And what else needs to, or can be done to help correct this problem? Well, you know, I, th- I think the, the college has, has actually come in with uh, some recent guidelines that have actually been quite helpful. So, for example, they say, you know, we you can't, uh, you know, a practice can't say, oh, we're not doing refills of narcotics. So there can't be any exclusivity of, of refusing to help patients who are on controlled medications, including um, uh, including uh, opiates or, or narcotics. Uh but, you know, I just think, you know, increasing education, uh, you know, regulatory bodies really reassessing how can they become part of the solution uh, moving forward, but also government. Government needs to really recognize that that this is a, a, a huge problem. An interesting fact is that a year and a half, two years ago, there was an RFP that was put out for chronic pain management or to look at how we manage chronic pain within our province, which is very poorly done. Um and the RFP, uh, I actually put a bid in on the RFP because I think, uh, you know, how we manage chronic pain needs to be addressed urgently. It's affecting the physical and mental well-being of our patients. It's leading to lots of negative outcomes. And so, but that RFP was withdrawn, and uh, which, which I think was actually an opportunity to really address some of those areas and could have actually probably prevented a lot of uh, the, the challenges that we're seeing today with regards to patients on chronic opiates.
And that is Dr. Todd Young, the medical director of Medicuro. Jerry Lynn. Well, don't blink. Technology moves at a breakneck pace. And we're here to help you out with this with our feature, Tech Talk Tuesday. This week, we talked about the updates on Rogers Wireless Plans and their collaboration with the Professional Women's Hockey League. We also discussed cyber security breaches and even touched on the extraordinary accomplishment of a 13-year-old Tetris prodigy. Here's our conversation with resident tech technologist Kevin Andrews. How does this all relate to this recent merger with Shaw Communications? Well, it looks as if, you know, Rogers is implementing these price hikes on certain wireless plans and and they are citing the need for additional revenue to enhance what they are claiming as uh, service quality, uh, expanding their network capabilities and upgrading customer service tools. So maybe they need to further clarify that. But, you know, if, uh, like you mentioned, you know, this decision comes really on the heels of the approved merger between Rogers and Shaw Communications, a deal, again, like you mentioned, was $26 billion. Now, you know, despite the, the industry minister's initial promise that the merger would really lead to cheaper wireless prices, the approved conditions for Rogers did not specify or, or require them to really maintain or decrease prices. So instead, Rogers is now required to really grow its workforce, keep a headquarters in Western Canada, and, and I think the other, the other one is to invest in $6.5 billion over the next decade to improve 5G coverage and, and internet access in rural areas. So the fact that there is no clear rules about controlling prices for Rogers really raises worries about whether consumers will benefit or if the company profits will will be the main focus. Uh, I bet the latter for sure. Now, um, you know, as prices go up, it it highlights a possible clash between what the company wants and and what was agreed upon during this merger. And and so, you know, the penalties for for breaking these rules really show the government's effort to really try and balance business interests with, with the aim of offering affordable and, and competitive services in Canada. So, I mean, really the bottom line here shows a situation of really managing the mix of business plans, government rules, and consumer rights in, in the telecom industry. And unfortunately, you know, it looks as if the consumers will come last on that list. Now, keeping with Rogers, it looks as if they've joined forces with the Professional Women's Hockey League here in Canada as of this new year, becoming the official telecom partner Rogers offers fans, behind-the-scenes content and supports PWHL Montreal, providing unique experiences for local girls in minor hockey. So, Kevin, how does this collaboration work, and what does it mean for the hockey experience in promoting women's hockey growth here in Canada? Well, you know, if we can overlook the Rogers increasing our cell phone bills, I think the partnership with the PWHL is a positive move towards improving hockey experience and, and fostering really a stronger connection to the sport. Also, you know, their backing of the PWHL Montreal goes beyond the ice. It, it offers distinctive experiences for girls in local minor hockey programs. So, you know, this collaboration is a progressive step towards really a more inclusive and vibrant future for, for hockey in Canada. We're speaking with Kevin Andrews, our local technologist here on Tech Talk Tuesday on your VOCM mornings. And following the recent cybersecurity breach at Grenfell Campus in Cornerbrook, the University of Sherbrooke in Quebec now grapples with a similar threat as the LockBit ransomware gang begins disclosing stolen data. With a substantial impact on approximately 31,000 students and 8,200 faculty and staff, There are a lot of uncertainties regarding the nature of compromised data. So, Kevin, can you just elaborate on the specifics of this incident and speak to the broader concerns surrounding cybersecurity challenges within the education sector? 
Yeah, I mean, a very timely uh, timely topic here. Uh, much like the breach at, you know, Grandfall Campus, uh, this incident at the University of Sherbrooke really shows a worrying trend of cyber attacks targeting educational institutions. Now, I mean, with a large number of students and staff affected, it, it shows how vulnerable educational institutions are really to cyber, th- uh, cyber uh, uh, threats. And so the thing is, uh, you know, cyber criminals often target universities thinking, you know, they'll pay ransoms uh, to protect student data. Uh, now, uh, not knowing all the details here, since, you know, disclosure is limited until the threat is removed, what I can say is, uh, which is much like Grenfell, that, that this incident emphasizes really the urgent need for stronger cybersecurity uh, uh, rules in, in schools uh, to really safeguard both the operations and, and the privacy of, of individuals. And so, you know, as cyber threats like this continue, it's crucial for schools to, to really invest in stricter strategies to really minimize that impact on operations and the well-being of students and staff. And finally, Kevin, on a bit of a lighter note, for gaming enthusiasts with a fondness for 80s nostalgia, a pretty remarkable milestone has been achieved by 13-year-old Tetris prodigy Willis Gibson. In a historic feat, he became the first human to officially, quote-unquote, beat the classic NES version of Tetris. So, Kevin, can you just comment on this remarkable achievement and how someone actually beats Tetris? Tetris? Yeah, I mean, now, Ben, I'm not sure what gaming era you grow out of, but back in my 80s school days, uh, hitting level 50 on the NES made you a bona fide gaming deity. I mean, it was, it was like reaching the Mount Olympus of video games. And, and so, you know, it looks like as if this 13-year-old Willis Gibson, uh, also known, I think, to his online friends as Blue Scooty, uh, made history by <laughs> claiming to be the first person to officially, quote-unquote, like you mentioned, beat the classic uh, version of Tetris on the NES system, I think some 34 years after its release. So, you know, Tetris, for anyone who is not aware, was created by a Soviet engineer in 1984 and was initially thought to have no ending. However, uh, reaching a high level would cause the, ga- the game to crash and and a feat achieved only right now by an ai program until gibson's recent accomplishment so you know playing for just 38 minutes straight he reached a level 157 causing the game to glitch out and crash and effectively beat tetris now i saw the video on social media uh, where the young boy looked incredibly surprised uh, and and it just suddenly crashed and i mean his genuine shock and disbelief was really hilarious creating sort of a you know a compelling moment that really resonates with the unexpected nature of of his achievement anyway you know it goes to show that you know even though many skeptics claim conquering this difficult nes version of tetris was reserved for only ai uh it, you know it, and deemed impossible by us mere mortals uh, this young boy proved that with determination and skill humans can play just as good as ai yeah, I was impressed with myself when I beat Bop It, but I feel like that's got nothing on Tetris. <laughs> I don't think so. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, actually, a brilliant movie as well. It's only came out semi-recently in the last couple of years, all about kind of the history of te- of, uh, of Tetris and where it all came from. It was a, uh, a great watch as well. Have you caught that one, Kevin? I, I have, and it's uh, there's a lot of details in there that I didn't expect to see, the, talking Me about too. how it was designed and developed and stuff, and it was uh, it's certainly a, a good watch. And that is Ben Murphy speaking with our resident technologist, Kevin Andrews, back on Tech Talk Tuesday. Ben. Well, the International Association of Firefighters says 63% of the names added to the wall at the Fallen Firefighter Memorial 
were members who had died from occupational cancer. In partnership with the Firefighter Cancer Support Network, the IAFF has designated January as Firefighter Cancer Awareness Month. Labrador City Fire Chief Joe Power joined us on Tuesday morning. So I guess just first off, can you just share with our listeners how occupational cancer has impacted yourself and members of the Labrador City Fire Department? Well, uh, for myself, Ben, back in 2019, April of 2019, I was diagnosed with colon cancer, and it was uh, uh, through a workplace in L uh, um, that uh, was proven that it was uh, through firefighting that I, that I got cancer. So why is Firefighter Cancer Awareness Month so important? Well, it's... Uh, Right now, it's uh, in the last, I'm going to say, 10 years, it's uh, been coming out more uh, with firefighters themselves coming out more in the media. And every province right now has got some legislation for presumption of cancer, but it's all different. Like in Nova Scotia, there's 10 types. Uh, In Quebec, there's 15. in our province then we had 11 and we just had six more so we need it to be the same all across canada Uh, we need to develop a national framework that raises awareness of cancer that's linked to firefighting are there any oh sorry and that will enable us to have better cancer prevention cancer treatment and uh, a common direction for for all problems is to go in. Are there any particular challenges you face in raising awareness and education about cancer risks in the firefighting profession? Uh, there is. Uh, I won't say it's new because it's been brought to light big time in the last eight to 10 years, but there's still challenges like uh, even through our own provinces because not every fire department can afford uh, the education can't afford the resources. There's a lot of changes that's been made over the years, like um, a lot of bigger departments in the province. And like uh, we can, we got decom machines for after a working fire, everybody gets wholesale and that. Uh, we've got two suits of bunker gear for one more washing one. We got the proper washers uh, to um, clean our bunker gear with. Uh, We've got the proper BA systems, masks, all that. Uh, we're, do, we're doing things. We got showers installed uh, so the guys and girls are not bringing it home to their families. But there's a lot of fire departments in this province that can't afford those resources and don't have it in their budgets. We're speaking with Labrador City Fire Chief Joe Power on your VOCM Mornings. And Chief Power, how does exposure to carcinogens like all that smoke in the line of duty impact long-term health? Um, for myself right now, like, uh, I am cancer free. I was fortunate early detection and that, but I've been working with, uh, volunteer members throughout this province. Now this, um, some of them guys are struggling. Um, well, number one, their health, uh, like I said, uh, they're going back and forth to the hospitals. It's, uh, it's a burden on their families mentally and financially because, uh, Right now, you're not getting 100% of your earnings. Uh, but workplace in L, now you can only get up to $65,000 a year, and basically you're only getting 85% of that. So 
it's a big financial burden on your families, especially for volunteer firefighters. Like most of these guys and girls in the province, they're out volunteering or doing what they can. And once they end up getting cancer, uh, it's not a good situation that you're in. And what steps are being taken to support firefighters and their families when a cancer diagnosis is made? Well, right now we've got, uh, back in 2016, our own province, uh, we adopted the legislation for presumptive cancer, and that's improving all the time. A lot of departments are trying to implement the education and trying to get the resources to protect their families. And also Bill C-224, like... Uh, the government has made the federal government has made a commitment there to implement an action plan to protect firefighters from exposures to toxic flame retardants and death from household products when they're on fire. So it's it's a it's a lot of uh, a lot of movement being made, but but us as firefighters too, like there's a lot we can do to uh, help ourselves too, like when it comes to these matters, like proven that you have gotten cancer through uh through firefighting like um we have exposure forms we have to fill out uh the paperwork is is the biggest thing again for this province we've been helping some firefighters now that have been in the service for a long while and years ago the proper paperwork no exposure forms done no incident reports done stuff like that so we can help ourselves by making sure all this is filled out after every call. And that is Labrador City Fire Chief Joe Power. Stay with us. We have lots more to bring you here on the best of your VOCM mornings. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions. Plus, interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. Good Sunday morning. Welcome back to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. And I'm Ben Murphy. The Students' Union at Memorial University is lobbying for the cause of two Gazan students, Marilyn and Mirren Kaskin, who are seeking to bring their brothers to join them here in Newfoundland and Labrador. John Harris, the Director of External Affairs, says that while the Kaskin sisters arrived last fall, their brothers remain in South Gaza attempting to leave the country. John Harris joined us on Wednesday morning. Can you just share the story of Marilyn and Miron Kaskin with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Miron and, 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 and Marilyn uh, got here uh, just in uh, October 10th, uh, right after the beginning of the uh, conflict. And, and they uh, got here on a, a what's called a human rights uh, defender visa. Uh, so because of their advocacy, uh, they felt it wasn't safe for them any longer in Gaza and had been in Turkey for the past couple of years. Uh, that wasn't really safe for them either, uh, given the human rights con- uh, situation. And, and they're here in uh, Newfoundland now uh, as human rights defenders. Uh, so what they're trying to do is get into uh, a very limited program that the government has offered for temporary travel for uh, those in Gaza. Uh, this emergency visa program that is going to give 1,000 visas uh, to uh, people in Gaza that are directly connected to those in Canada. Uh, so we're raising money. We're trying to uh, get enough funds to be able to fund uh 
Talal and Fahed to come to Newfoundland and be reunited with their uh, older sisters uh, who've often been, you know, uh, who for the whole lives have been kind of these motherly figures to their old, uh, younger brothers. So is the main issue here getting the funds or is it securing one of those visas or two of those visas? I think it's both. So, so right now the, the process is underway with immigration uh, lawyer. Um, hopefully, this you know could be done under a single application. Uh, they're 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 uh, yeah. They're, these things are expensive, right? You know, boys are currently in Rafa uh, and are attempting to get to Egypt, uh, get flights over here, get accommodations. All of this is very, very expensive on short notice. And we want to be able to set up the family when they're here. Uh, there's no financial support for uh, the, the boys when they get here. So we want to, uh, you know, I think we've had a really great response so far from the community and would love to see more, uh, more donations on the, the GoFundMe. Yeah, so what is Monsu doing to help? Uh, Mansu's, we, we want to advocate, you know, I think it's important to, to advocate for those in our community, uh, to try and raise awareness and trying to, uh, you know, raise funds and put public pressure. Uh, but a lot of this is coming from grassroots solidarity, uh, groups. Uh, we didn't start the fundraiser. We want to support the fundraiser. Um, but you know, a lot of community members are coming together, uh, to support, uh, these women and, and, and to try and bring their brothers home. Uh, so I, I would love to see any support from the public that we can get. We're speaking with John Harris, the Director of External Affairs with Monsu. And John, how many students at Mon have connections to Gaza? There are a, a lot of students with, with family uh, in, in Gaza or in the West Bank. A lot of Palestinian students. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's extremely tough right now for... Uh, Palestinians and Palestinian students are seeing, you know, constant bombardment and, and siege of Gaza that has taken place over the past few months. Um, seeing over 20,000 people being killed by, by the Israeli uh, defense force. I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's time that we, uh, as a country, uh, come together and, and call for you know, a ceasefire and end to this conflict. I think it's, you know, it's, it's been devastating to see so much pain and destruction, especially uh, to those. Um, many, many of those have uh, very close connections here in this province. Uh, so uh, I would love, but love to hear some more support from, from the public for, you know, calling for a ceasefire and for helping these uh, two young, young women. Yeah. And what more are you hearing from these students? There's a, uh, you know, a, a huge, uh, outpour of, of support these past uh, few weeks um, to help each other out, but also to to organize and, and, and uh, protest these uh, uh, this this war. I think that you know we need to pressure our members of parliament to call for a ceasefire. Uh, I think that you know Canada finally did vote in the UN to. Uh, uh, for for a permanent ceasefire, but we've really not seen enough pressure from from this federal government, and we're, we're not really seeing enough uh, financial support for uh, bringing those from from Gaza who need to leave uh, over here. I think you know obviously we we want people to be able to stay safely in Gaza, but for those cases that people have to uh, escape, uh, we have only a thousand visas, and you know I think. 
there's many, many in this province who may have, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 people uh, each in, in Gaza. So there's going to be thousands and thousands of applications. So we really hope that, you know, we can put pressure to increase the number of visas or increase the uh, different pathways down the line uh, that we can be able to reunite, reunify families or, or bring people from, from Gaza uh, to safety here. And that is John Harris, the Director of External Affairs at Munsu. Jerry Lynn? Well, a recent study indicates that $35 million worth of gift cards in Canada is going unused. With gift cards being a popular holiday gift, many retailers say they appreciate customers redeeming vouchers sooner rather than later. To discuss it further, we were joined by Retail Council of Canada Atlantic Director Jim Cormier. $35 million worth of cards going unused, is that an annual figure? Well, you know, I guess it would. Uh, it, it depends. Um, you know, I think in this case, uh, I'm, I'm not uh, aware of the stats uh, right offhand that you're you're quoting, but I would assume it's an annual figure. And I mean, how important are gift card sales for businesses? Well, they're increasingly important for retailers. Uh, you know, we did. Uh, you and I chatted about our uh, holiday shopping uh, intentions uh, back uh, as early as this fall. And uh, at the time, it was showing, and it's shown every year, the, uh, the survey that we do nationally, that you know, it was upwards of 35 40% uh, of people that were responding were saying that they were planning on buying gift cards and that people like to get gift cards. So, you know, it is uh, an increasingly uh, growing part of the, of the retail business. But, you know, of course, it, it is one of those things that, uh, you know, consumers, if they're going to buy it, they, they do have to at least check to make sure what they're buying. Um, you know, there's no expiry on a gift card, but that said, depending on the type of service involved, like if it's a, a credit card company's gift card, those do have expiry dates on them and they also have activation fees. So, you know, it's kind of a buyer beware. Uh, make sure that you uh, you read what's uh, what's involved with the gift card before you make your purchase. Why should folks spend their gift cards sooner rather than saving them for a rainy day? Well, again, that depends on the consumer. You know, we're, we're not uh, in the business of trying to tell our, our customers when they should and shouldn't buy. Uh, our members really appreciate the fact that they are buying a gift card. You know, obviously it's, it's beneficial for the retailer and that they get the money up front, but they, of course, it does sit on their books as, uh, as a liability until that, uh, that money is in fact spent. So, you know, obviously retailers would appreciate it if, uh, if people didn't leave the money on the gift card for for years and years but you know that said it it it, it really does leave that with the consumer to uh, make their own determinations of you know would they like to go in right away and buy a specific gift or, or were they would they like to spread the gift card out over multiple purchases so you know our members don't really have uh you know a strong opinion on it one way or the other but of course you know it, it does make things better from an accounting perspective if in fact uh, you know, the, the retailer has their customers coming in and redeeming the gift card. Jim, is there a particular time that it's best to spend a gift card? Well, you know, again, it, it depends on the, the individual. Um, you, know, and it, you know, what we've seen, it, it, sometimes it depends on the product as well. For one reason or another, you know, electronic products, uh, if there's gift cards that are purchased for those types of retail stores, they seem to be redeemed quite quickly. Um, you know, I think it's probably because technology changes so quickly and people are always looking for the, the newest and best thing. Also because those, uh, those products tend to have a, pro- a higher price point. So maybe they use up the gift card. Whereas, 
you know, for places like, say, a coffee shop, maybe the gift card, uh, you know, it, it sits with a little bit left on it for uh, for a longer period of time. So, you know, it, it all depends on the retailer themselves. And, uh, you know, the time of year, I, I think that's uh, that's probably difficult to determine as to, you know, when the best time or worst time is for people using up their gift cards. I would assume that in some cases it's it's this time of year because a lot of people get them at uh, at the Christmas holiday season. I'm speaking with Jim Cormier, executive, or sorry, you are the Atlantic Director at the Retail Council of Canada. Jim, you mentioned that gift cards in Canada don't have an expiration, and and that's across the board in the country, right? I believe so. Um, you know, I just uh, I, I didn't look at every single province. I know there's there's no expiry on them in Newfoundland and Labrador, okay. unless you know there's always uh, there's always a few exceptions. You know, if it's for a charitable cause. Uh, they they can have uh, fees involved in them. They can have expiry if it's for an actual event. Like for instance, if I'm not sure if this would ever happen, but if it was for, you know, you you purchase a gift card to give to somebody that's for a one night event that's happening in three months time. Well, obviously, if you don't go to that event and you don't redeem the gift card, well, it's it you know there's an expiry there. But when it's for you know, for a general merchandise store or a grocery store, you know those those do not expire. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the the credit card companies' gift cards, um, you know, those obviously have fees involved with them, and those I believe can expire. But uh, you know, they aren't members of ours, so I'm, I'm not as up on uh, on the way that they do their business. And they're also federally regulated, so they follow different rules. Fair enough. Thank you for uh, entertaining my question. There is this a slow time of year for businesses? Well, it, it is for retail businesses. Uh, you know, again, I, I don't want to uh, paint them all with the same brush, but for the most part, you know, the lead up to the Christmas holiday season is very busy. And then uh, in January, a lot of people, of course, have spent a fair amount of money uh, in November, December. So they, they usually pull back uh, on their spending in January. And so it is uh, it can be a very slow time of year for, for retail businesses. Uh, they use it as an opportunity to do things like inventory. Uh, a lot of retail employees take vacations in January, February, but uh, you know, it, it can be slow uh, depending on the product that they offer. And that is my conversation with Jim Cormier. He's the Atlantic Director at the Retail Council of Canada. Ben, I can tell you right now, no stone is left unturned in my wallet, okay? <laughs> I don't leave one single penny left on any gift card ever. Long that makes standing. two of us. Yep, yep. I can't stand the thought of it even. Are you worried about vehicles driving through your neighborhood at breakneck speeds? You know, I do see that, yeah. Well, it, it definitely happens in my neighborhood, I can promise you that. And guess what? We're not alone. A new Canadian Automobile Association poll shows that Canadians are deeply alarmed by speeders. Julia Kent is Director of Social Responsibility and Advocacy at the CAA. She joined us on Thursday morning. What were your findings when it comes to Canadians' attitude towards speeding? Well, there were a few things in the poll that were interesting, but the most interesting thing uh, was that 9 in 10 Canadians, so about 88% uh, to be more precise, say they are deeply worried about speeding in residential areas. And on top of that, 1 in 5 or 22% admitted to doing it at least sometimes. So uh, this is really... uh, uh, shocking to us it's uh, surprising it is something that we really need to start paying attention to how big a contributing factor is speeding when it comes to accidents 
Well, uh, data is only available from the federal government uh, as of uh 2021, um, but most recently, uh, uh, the number of motor vehicle fatalities and injuries were both up in that year, and more than 1,700 Canadians died in that year, and 100,000 were injured, um, and that has been consistent. That number has been consistent uh, through recent years as well. Um, but a quarter of those fatalities uh, were due to speeding. So that kind of tells you the impact, how uh, how much speeding contributes uh, to collisions and, and fatalities on the road. And the uh, latest data from the federal government, um, pedestrians actually were 15% of fatalities and injuries in 2021. Um, so more than 180 pedestrians actually died in a 2021 collision. So that's the second largest group of deaths, um, second only to, to the drivers themselves. Are many of those speed-related accidents preventable? They're completely preventable. And, you know, something that we uh, are always remembering is that, you know, just driving 10 kilometers over the speed limit increases the likelihood of collision by as much as 60%. And when it, on average, only saves a driver about four minutes in their trip time. Um, And that information is from the Traffic Injury Research Foundation who, you know, clock that kind of stuff regularly. Um, but yes, it's really avoidable. And what we really want to do is encourage people uh, to think long and hard about the numbers, about the statistics, and really decide whether or not saving a couple of minutes on their trip is worth it. Um, and I think that the majority of Atlanta Canadians would agree with me that it's just not. I'm speaking with Julia Kent, Director of Social Responsibility and Advocacy at CAA. Julia, uh, I'm surprised about this one. That's, you know, sometimes people who are concerned about speeding are also drivers who admit to speeding. What's going on there? Well, it's the same kind of uh, behavior we see with, you know, cell phone use in a vehicle. People know how dangerous that is. They know it's not the right choice. They know they shouldn't be doing it, but they still do it because the temptation is so great. And I think that that is the behavior that we are seeing uh, across the country, across the world. Uh, We live in a time where everything is rushed. Um, And I was thinking about this the other day and I was like, you know, why is that? And a lot of it has to do with the dawn of the internet, the dawn of mobile phones. Um, Our our days are less simple. uh, They're busier. And we're trying to cram so much in uh, to a small amount of time that the temptation to speed when we're behind the wheel is so great. We just want to get everything sooner, faster, more instantaneously. Uh, So I think that that is likely to be uh, one of the driving factors behind the increase in speeding. Are there instances where if you're driving the posted speed limit, it could mean that you're going too fast? There definitely is. And actually, I've talked a lot about this recently uh, when I've been telling people um, how to prepare for winter driving and how to cope with winter driving. And uh, it's a really good reminder to remember that uh, speed limits, posted speed limits are for ideal conditions, ideal weather. That means uh, clear skies, dry pavement, and no precipitation. And it even can mean above zero temperatures, above freezing. And especially where most of the country is in the thick of winter, it's really important to respect the speed limit and drive even slower to ensure the safety of everybody on the road. I may be speaking out of school now, Julia, but was there anything in the poll that addressed uh, Canadians' desire for an increased enforcement when it comes to speeding? 
There was not, um, but I will add uh, that uh, the poll actually asked Canadians to list the top dangerous driving behaviours they admit to doing. And the top five included speeding on the highway, so 45% of people admitted to that, engaging with technology in their car, which could be anything, techie, uh, 32% admitted to that. And then speeding in a residential zone, um, as I mentioned, was 22%, and driving well over the speed limit was 19%. And then lastly, driving when too tired, 18%. So that's a lot of concerns. Um, uh, You know, speeding being uh, the most prevalent, uh, but, you know, we can all do a better job when we're behind the wheel, I think. And, I mean, in conclusion here, do you have a message to drivers with a heavy foot on the gas pedal? I would really think about the cost and is it really worth it? Are you really, is it really worth it to save a few minutes and get there a few minutes or faster when the risk uh, is so great um, to the uh, the lives and, and well-being of those around you? So, uh, yeah, I would I would definitely keep that in mind. And our message is always slow down. It's, it's never a bad idea to slow down, no matter what the weather or what the situation. Uh, you have a lot more control behind the wheel if you just slow down. And that is Julia Kent. Director of Social Responsibility and Advocacy at the CAA. Stay with us. We're going to hear all about Scurvy Night 2.0 coming up tomorrow night. Stay with us on the best of your VOCM mornings. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Good Sunday morning. Welcome back to the best of your VOCM mornings. Well, Ben, the Growlers are back in action with the Adirondack Thunder yep. later today at Mary Brown Center. But looking ahead, I mean, a lot of the players have have a commitment to the community and no one more so than this next interview. Yeah, tomorrow night marks Scurvy Night 2.0. Newfoundland Growlers captain Todd Skirving, along with some teammates and supporters. They'll be gathering at Golf Shots in Mount Pearl on Monday evening for a fundraiser, all in support of the Canadian Cancer Society. There will be a raffle, a silent auction, a 50-50, and all proceeds will be donated to Daffodil Place in honor of Todd's father, Rod Skirving. I caught up with Todd after Thursday night's game at Mary Brown Center. Yeah, we're excited. Uh, it's kind of to tie it all up, put the, the finishing touches on uh, the Movember uh, fundraiser. Um, we're going to do that golf shots. They were one of the main partners coming on early. So we're excited for that. Um, we're going to do from 6 to 11, um, all ages before 9. I thought it would be important to just get kind of, you know, the entire fan base kind of involved this year if I was able to, and golf shots has, you know, the licensing for that. So after 9, it'll be 19 plus with ID. But, uh, yeah, just excited. A lot of different people. I, I could probably be here, you know, couple minutes and list off all the people that helped this year but uh, a lot of people made some donations for prizes as well so there's going to be a silent auction there's going to be a door prize that you can buy tickets for so just kind of a lot of fun things going at once um, it is during all-star break but I, I'm suspecting a few players will obviously come out to that and like I said just a fun time to mingle with the fans kind of give back to them while they give back to us and and just have a good time and, and raise some money for a good cause yeah that good cause what is it where's the money going uh, it's going to go to uh, the C- Canadian Cancer Society Daffodil Place uh, same place we did last year um, in honor of my dad he's still battling prostate cancer so um yeah it's almost it it seems like it gets a little bit better each time we do things or each year i know it's only a second year but it just 
Um, I felt like I never had to do much this year um, with our organization stepping up and John Loder at Relic with the shirts and then obviously Paul and his buddy Lee doing the design again and then, and then golf shots coming on like they did and then I just felt I never wasn't pl- I wasn't planning on doing a silent auction but um, you know just friends family friends I'd say now that I've gotten in over the past couple years kind of just reached out and said hey we'll donate some prizes and so now we have the opportunity to just have a silent auction with that too. What does that mean to you? You know that at one point a lot of these people were strangers and now they're stepping up to support you and, and this great cause. Yeah, it's, it's just what Newfoundland is, right? It, it's I feel like everyone's kind of family out here. I know it sounds kind of cheesy and cliche, but um, since day one, uh, you just, you know, they're big, big supporters of our team, uh, big supporters of the people that we have uh, in our organization. So it, it's always fun when you get a chance to go back out in the community and get back to them and hopefully have a good time with that. And Todd as well, you mentioned uh, your father's battle with prostate cancer and he's still going through that but why is this such an important thing for you to do each and every year because it's, it's a lot of work and you know you're a busy person yeah definitely um, like I said this year was easier just because I had so many people help but uh, it, just having those conversations with my dad I know uh, it was a shock obviously early on I mean you, you hear the word cancer and it can go either way no matter the situation so um, just from talking with my dad it just felt like you know we saw it as an opportunity to help raise awareness and I think that's the most important part is having those conversations Conversations, having men get checked out at an early age. I got to get checked out now in the next couple of years because I'm starting to get on, the, you know, midway to 35, on my way to 40 now. So um, it's just, you know, being able to have those conversations, uh, reach out and, and get checked up and, and spread that awareness. So, um, like I said, it's it's doing it in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, kind of what's come a second home for me. And yeah, we're just excited about it all. And that was a good point too. What would you say to other men, you know, like you and I in this position about just checking up on themselves, whether it's physical health, mental health, whatever the case may be? Yeah, I mean, I, I know sometimes it can be hard to ask, but it's it's finding maybe a family member, uh, a parent, a brother, a sister, a best friend, uh, maybe even a stranger. I mean, whoever you feel comfortable talking to about any of those kind of situations, whether it's mental health or, or just getting checked up uh, on your body. I mean, it could go a long way. It could save lives. And who knows, you could be helping someone else too. So like I said, just have Having those conversations, I feel like it's grown a lot within our game of uh, the hockey, game of hockey, and uh, you know, hopefully, it continues on and we can raise more awareness as we move forward. You feel those conversations are easier to have in places like the dressing room now? Mo- uh, definitely. Um, we're very fortunate with the organization that we have that we have a lot of resources. But I just feel like hockey in general, you see it on social media. Social media is so big now. You, you see the support. You see people sticking up for each other. And, and like I said before, we, we have a very unique platform. Um, not to get all political and stuff, but just using your platform for good and, and trying to be a voice to help those people that might be struggling. Like I said, it's uh, sometimes it could be just holding a door, um, you know, saying please and thank you or how's your day going. It, it could go a long way to help someone and you don't know what their daily lives are like. So we have a, a great op- opportunity and platform to make a difference out in the community here in Newfoundland. One more quick plug for how people can get involved Monday. Um, yeah, I, I, real, re- realistically, all you got to do is probably just show up between 6 and 11, um, all ages before 9, and then after 9, we'll uh, you know get the adults and, and have some fun and mingle. Um, I know there is going to be a bit of a crossover with, uh, I think, the golf league that is going to be there, which is fine. Um, it'll allow us all to mingle, but... Uh, just want to get everyone involved and get back to golf shots for them coming on and kind of just opening their doors and and to be honest it was, it's been pretty hands-off it feels like this year because they've really stepped up with uh, Trevor and Tara over there at golf shots so we're really excited and just an opportunity to get together with our fans you know we've been on the road for a good chunk of the first part of the season um, you know we're trying to build something here down the stretch special and, and we need them on board with us so we're excited to go see the fans and have a good time and uh, have a few laughs.
Todd Skirving, thanks for this. Thank you. And that is Newfoundland Growlers Captain Todd Skirving. Scurvy Night 2.0 happening at Golf Shots tomorrow night, 6 to 9 p.m. for all ages, and 9 p.m. to 11 will be 19 plus. You will need ID. Looking forward to seeing everybody out there. It should be a great night, and again, all in support of the Canadian Cancer Society and Daffodil Place in honor of Todd's father, Rod Skirving, one of the best human beings you will ever get a chance to meet. Right. You've met both of his parents, yep. right? And they know you, and yep, they'll say hello to you if they see you. Rod is the best. Wow. They both are. They're just incredible. But uh, yeah, Rod, he's the man. Rod That's Skirving his dad. is the man. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. One of the, just some of the greatest people you'll ever have the pleasure of coming across. And if you get a chance to ever say hi, I recommend you do so. You will not regret it. Um, our go. time's just about up. Yeah. Here on the best of your VOCM mornings. Thanks for tuning into the program and uh, starting your Sunday morning with us. We'll have lots to bring you tomorrow morning, 530 to 9, right here on your VOCM mornings. Yeah. I'm Ben Murphy. I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. Have a safe and happy Sunday morning.